Peter Drucker once said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. But what does culture mean exactly, and what does it take to really grow your business sales? Welcome to Tell Me Something Good About Retail, the podcast of The Retail Doctor, and I'm your host, Bob Vibbs. In this episode, I'm talking to Derek O'Carroll, CEO of Brightburl, about what those winning in retail are doing by creating a great culture. And it's not just in their stores. Did you know fulfillment warehouses can run as much as 60% turnover? Why? You guessed it, culture. Now let's get going. What's it like over there in London today, my friend? Well, it's very quiet, Bob. Very quiet indeed. Not not many people about. Everyone in trying to deal with their teenage kids and how to entertain them during this interesting time. Well, you came through this yourself, if I'm not mistaken, in the last week or so, right? Yes. Yes. We came down uh, with the symptoms about 14 days ago, um, and it wasn't very pretty for about seven days. And then we came out the other end, had a little relapse. Uh, and we're just beginning to sort of regain energy and, and, and zap. So, yeah, it's, a, it's quite a virulent little bugger. Okay. But see, you're on the other side of it. And um, even though we are recording this at the very end of March, and uh, we all hope that there will be better news after we, <clears throat> we are um, through this, I wanted to make sure everybody understands that this is not in the moment when they hear this. So um, w- originally... We were chatting. Uh, we were going to chat about, um, you know, basically what, your success there at since taking over Bright Pearl and um, how you were, you know, shortlisted as CEO of the year for Digital Masters Awards. So, what does that all mean? And and basically, what do you all do over there? So, Bright Pearl is a it's an operations platform that merchants, high growth merchants, who sell on multiple channels. Uh, they would use our service to handle all of the automation requirements as you orchestrate all of the jobs of work that need to be done after an order is placed on a website or in a store. Uh, and as you guys know, there's a lot of uh, complexity that arises if you want to maintain a very high level of customer service. And you have to ha- have a system that gives you visibility all the way through that process, um, both ways, you know, reverse logistics included. Um, so that's what we do. A company was set up uh, by an actual retailer uh, uh, just over 10 years ago, and uh, they got it to a certain point, and I joined uh, in uh, 2016, in May, um, and uh, essentially have brought to bear a couple of changes in our go-to-market strategy, primarily uh, to focus on the U.S., actually, uh, which has been very successful to date. Yeah, but that's what we do. Okay. And, you know, we originally were talking, going to talk about um, the rise of the review culture. Mm. And, um, you know, if you go back probably 10 years ago, people were poo-pooing. Why would I care what anonymous people think uh, when I don't know who they are? And yet that's totally the opposite way. I, uh, opposite way now. I can't imagine anyone saying reviews don't matter. Oh, yeah. No. And I think now there's, uh, there's a huge body of evidence. Um, which we were chatting about earlier. Uh, we did a survey of 400 uh, merchants or retailers in the USA last year, late last year, uh, and 2,000 consumers. And we were trying to correlate the connection between good reviews, bad reviews, and then what were the behaviors of merchants that were causing those. Um, and what we saw was a connection uh, whereby the root cause of a bad review uh, is the same inverted for a good review. Uh, and and the root cause would be things like um, 
I ordered a product, it arrived, and the product was different in the box. In other words, someone had made a mistake in the warehouse. Um, or um, I didn't get the product for two weeks or three weeks and, not, and, and so on and so forth. And we analyzed 75,000 reviews and we found human error to be the number one root cause of that uh, review being placed as a negative review, but also positive. So it's the same side of the equation, which was... Really oh, for a minute, I thought you were going to say we need to get rid of those damn humans and more robots. No, 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 definitely not. <laughs> I think I, I, I think it's uh, when you have... Humans uh, can do tasks that, um, uh, you know, humans find tasks that can be difficult a human, that computers will find easy and the inverse as well. So uh, you shouldn't have humans doing repetitive uh, jobs of work. You should get uh, automation to do that where possible. And so is that something um, that particularly direct-to-consumer brands um, need to look at? Because that's interesting you say about the repetitive nature. I mean, you know, Henry Ford started basically assembly line many generations ago, and he was considered the one guy who figured it all out, except that you had to pay people a lot of money if they were going to go through and do the same thing every day, right? Correct. Well, the one thing he didn't have in his factories was he didn't have high attrition of staff, which retailers do today. So uh, what we found is merchants... uh, both in the physical world and in the virtual world that have warehousing, they really do have to deal with a very high degree of um, staff attrition, people moving on. Um, and it's in the high 60s, which we, we were quite surprised at uh, within the market. So that means that every time staff move on, you have to retrain them. And if you don't have repeatable, repeatable processes that you can bring to bear quality repetition by individuals, you, you, you start running into this issue. Uh, and it becomes really bad at high peak periods, you know, when you're busy. Um, so do you think, didn't mean to interrupt, uh, do you think that the high attrition is due to people look at this job as a um, stopgap or a temp job more than they used to? Or is it that they get burned out on it? They don't realize what it will be like when they sign up. I think it's a, it's a mixture of, uh, it's a mixture of both and it varies. I think. Uh, where we see brands really focus on culture and their team, uh, we see very low levels of attrition. So it is down to how a owner, a company owner, thinks about how do I look after my staff? Um, because the connection with you know um, low cost, high turnover staff, and poor reviews is pretty much very evident now within the body of evidence that exists. Um, and so those those brands that those owners that really focus on how am I going to look after my people, they're the ones that actually do quite well in terms of they don't expose themselves to that attrition. So would you say that's like the number one thing that uh, smart direct to consumer organizations understand or put money behind, or you know, or are they just lucky? <laughs> no, no. It, you know, there's it, a great it, brand. Somebody loves working for the brand, so they'll put up with anything. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely not luck. I think, I think there's a couple of areas to look at. One, accept staff attrition will be very high. Uh, that's the first thing, and plan accordingly for, for that fact. Then the next question is, what are the, what are the training? Uh, how, how much time do you as a business owner put into developing training routines for your staff in all departments? And retail is a funny segment, but uh, their focus on training is very, very low which sort of is weird because the attrition is very, very high. That's the world I work at is training, and it's always a nice-to-have, not 
it's my competitive advantage. So, you know, I typically find people who are looking for training, find that I'm the answer, but trying to convince people who don't believe training is the answer, they're off. Oh, we got to have more social media influencers. Oh, we have to more discounts. Oh, and it's like, you're shooting the arrows like totally away from the bullseye, which is how are we going to, you know, let's be honest here after we come through this, which I know we will come through it. Um, how are retailers going to up their customer service? Because I don't think they can go back to a warehouse of pretty products where someone says, hi, can I help you find something? Do you have a budget? Let me know. I just don't think that's going to be compelling. It's amazing. A lot of people come to us and they say, hey, Derek, I'm growing really quickly and I want an operations platform. And I've looked at your website. It looks great. The first question we ask them is, well, do you understand the customer experiences that you're hoping to offer in all the channels you sell product on? And they look at us blank and they go, what, what do you mean? And they say, well, you know, have you actually mapped out the, the journey you want your customers to go through as a team before you hire anyone, before you open that new warehouse? And I would say eight times out of 10, the answer is no. We haven't had time to do that because we're too busy. So well, why are you thinking about buying a new back office operations platform if you haven't mapped out the journey that you want to offer your customers, just conceptually? And then that usually gets the right conversation going. And, you know, as CEO of Briper, I, I spend a lot of times uh, getting customers to really focus on what's important before they come to us. Because once they come to us and we invest, it's a partnership because we're a mission critical platform. Uh, You know, we're doing uh, everything from logistics to order management to accounting. We have to be successful. So therefore, we're very focused on making sure clients who come to us have really thought about what they want to offer. And then we can plug in underneath that the, the, the power of the platform that we have. But it's amazing how many customers just haven't had the time uh, to go off and work out the, those experiences that they want their end customers to enjoy. Well, so that's my thing is that, uh, you know, this big reset we are going through in retail right now where stores are closed for anywhere from three weeks to, you know, some probably two or three months um, is this opportunity to reinvest and say, you know what, we can't say I don't have time now. So what do we use it for? Because I think once that time passes, you know, I've said in America, once Major League Baseball gets back to business, I think we'll feel like, okay, there's some normalcy here, even if they're not playing to full stadiums. Um, Once that happens, though, you're going to be right back in it, which is going to be, oh, we don't have time to train. Oh, we don't have time for this. We just have to, we just have to, we just, and, and that chasing your tail is kind of what's gotten a lot of retailers in trouble right now, where you haven't really stopped to say, how are we different from the other guy? What is our branded shopping experience? And then how do we not only train, but hold people accountable to deliver it? And until you're willing to do that, I think you settle for crumbs when you could probably have a feast. Yeah, and, and I think that um, the characteristics that you've just summarized there, we see in companies going from the 3 million turnover per year up to the 10 million. They don't get past the 10 million unless they are very customer centric in terms of their processes and workflows. They don't get by 10 million if they haven't got a really good idea of the culture and the filters that they want their employees to use when making decisions when they're not there in the room with them. And that's what really culture is all about. And those two attributes underpinned by good training, as we said, they, they are the three sort of characteristics of companies that make it past 10 million above and beyond having a cool product. If you don't do all those three as well, you, you, your chances of getting past 10 million are pretty much negligible. Well, number two is really, uh, I haven't heard somebody say it quite that way. Can you unpack that a little more, Derek? I really like that idea about um, it's what they do when you're not around. 
it's yeah, kind so, of that's what culture is. It's not oh we go and we do fun virtual hangouts every Friday, right? That's not culture. That exa- exactly, yeah. It, it, it's it's uh, a lot of uh, people I speak to talk about. Well, I'm going to go off and develop my company values, and I said, well, what's that mean? I said, well, I want to be innovative. I want to be curious. I want to be uh, customer first, and they'll come up with a load of sound bites. And then we'll say, okay, uh, well, that's great, but do your team buy into that? And they say, well, what do you mean? So, well, they have, you're, you can't set the value. You can set the vision, but then they have to help you set the values. But then the values for any new person coming in the door, they're not for them just to repeat. They're them to use, okay, when I'm faced with a decision to make and you're not in the room, how am I going to use the company values to try and make the right decision? And, uh, and it's like having everyone in your team speak the same language and that's what's the that's the oil in the culture engine so to speak it's not coming out with our culture is these five words that we're going to stick up on the office wall it's much more in depth much much more in depth a lot of a lot of folks um that i speak to in the three million gmv rule they they culture like coming out of their ears as individuals but they're not able to create a format and a forum for everyone else to buy into that culture because they flip into the, well, I don't trust anyone else to do it. I'm going to dictate they do everything the way I wanted to do it. And then they don't scale. And that's the real, that's the real challenge here. Yeah, it's like you had a, a thing to do. It's like, we have to do culture admissions. Okay, great. I came up with it. I stuck it on the board. Uh, this is our corporate values. And you're like, mm, that's your values. And until enough people say, I can sign on to that. It's just yeah. um, you're kidding yourself, right? <clears throat> yeah, and 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 the thing about um, culture is is when an owner is engaging with their team to try and nail this really important issue, they've got to differentiate between current culture and aspired culture, because you can't mix them both. You've got to understand what your current culture is within the team, and that needs to come from the group, and what you aspire to, because that's the whole point of a culture. You're going on a journey as a team. And a lot of folks I, I, I chat to as they go through that sort of high growth phase of being a successful merchant, the ones that really get it, they understand that, the difference between aspired values that drive the culture and, and ones that are the current, which you need to either build upon or evolve away from. Yeah, I was just thinking, as you said that, of the documentary on Enron, which was the big energy firm in uh, Houston. And yeah. when you saw the uh, video, the documentary on it, it was like, holy crap, it was the wild, wild west and every man on his mm. own and whatever you can yeah. get away with, get away with. And we're going to be laughing at people and this is our culture and ultimately how um, that really was unmanageable for anybody. And yeah. I think to a lesser degree, that's what goes on with a lot of businesses where employees are all just do the best with what you think, whether that's what we would do or not. And yeah. and and yet it's it sounds easy to create culture. It's a lot of work, right? It's a lot of work, but it also teases out other key questions. We have a cool product. That's our functional differentiator. But what are our non-functional differentiators? So, for example, uh, I'm aware of a, a, a company that... Um, sells sex toys, for example, like our healthcare products. And their non-functional differentiator is when you call their support line, uh, they, their support goes that little bit further. In other words, they give you personal advice on how to use the product. And that's their non-functional differentiator as opposed to just their product. And that's what I mean, is that when you have a discussion with your team around what's our culture going to be today and aspirational, it, ha- it helps you really zero in and answer the question, well, how are we going to do things differently? Why are people going to go that extra mile for us? 
And that's the non-functional differentiator. And that, that's just one example that I gave you. But too many companies are out there today and they build a product and they say, that's it, we're done. And uh, it's just not good enough in today's world because someone can copy you within two months or three months. But it's very difficult to copy culture. It's nearly impossible. This season is sponsored by Springboard Retail POS. You know, one of the biggest challenges I hear from listeners, and whether they're selling from a store, from trunk shows, pop-ups, or just online, is that they want great, easy-to-use data. On top of that, they want customizable reporting. Well, that's where Springboard Retail comes in. Their best-in-class reporting helps you run a best-in-class retail operation. Higher sales, higher margins, and faster sell-through. Springboard Retail's customer success team will help you get all of your historical data into Springboard and get you up and running in a flash with a one-on-one personalized onboarding experience that's run by actual humans. And now it's even easier for you listeners to supercharge your business with Springboard Retail POS. Just visit springboardretail.com forward slash retail doc and you'll receive 20% off your first year. Now back to the show. You know, as we're coming out of this uh, uh, virus uh, pandemic, you know, yeah. people are saying, oh, it's all, um, you know, online's going to be the big winner. All the onlines are going to sail over the brick and mortar. And I'm not so sure about that because quite simply, it seems to me it's going to be much harder for a D2C brand to cut through. You've got your CBD oil face cream. You know, how do you possibly scale that against all of the other brands that are out there. And, and I go back to, at least in the United States, the brands that won are the brands that we've known for decades, like Clorox, like uh, Purell, like all of the Kleenex, all of these other brands who people were taking out mm-hmm. of the, the store. So uh, any thoughts about that difference between brick and mortar and online as we come out of all this? Well, the, the brands that are strong today, they have, they evolved by getting traction with young consumers maybe 20 years ago or 25 years ago. So if you're an online brand, be very cognizant of the importance of targeting your uh, age group that are going to be the power buyers of tomorrow or the people with cash in their pockets tomorrow. And uh, so if you target sort of the 15 to 25-year-old or 18 to 30-year-old, whatever it is relevant to your product, and then be very specific about, well, why are they going to talk to uh, each other? They, w- w- how are they going to communicate with each other? And what's the stereo sound going to be about our brand? And nail that and really focus on that. And that might be amazing customer success or customer service, as we said. Uh, it might be including them in product design decisions, whatever. Um, but I think that great brands get, will get built out of young buyers today and be built uh, um, on the internet through the influence channels that exist, like social. And so, what kind of advice do you have for retail owners right now? I mean, I don't expect you to have uh, all the answers, but what would you tell somebody? Here it is, sometime in May, let's say June. Well, well, I think uh, it, there's an opportunity to come out of this stronger by using the one thing that we never have enough of, which is time. And time is money. It's an old cliche, but use that time to. Go back to basics, because if you go back and redesign your business theoretically with your team and start off with the market you want to operate in, what's your strategy going to be to win in those markets? And then start with your customer experiences that you know you want to offer to differentiate yourself above your competition, of which there will be many, and map that out whilst you're in this quiet period 
and then build a plan with your team to execute upon that. And then that obviously your suppliers will pop out of that. You know, what's the system you're going to need for the back office and so forth, which is where Brightboro would come in. But just use the time to go back to basics because, uh, you know, it's the one thing we've got control over. And uh, tell me something good about retail. What do you love about retail? Um, well, I'm loving at the moment is the winners and the losers, so to speak. You know, as we go through this COVID-19, and I know this is a March recording, but what we're seeing is a um, huge increase in uh, anything to do with the home. So people are buying a bunch of product to uh, make their homes better, get healthier, uh, from vitamins to healthcare products to DIY tools. And um, uh, and then people are buying less fashion because obviously they're not going out. And we would we would just expect that to flip now over the next sort of two, three months as confidence returns. And hopefully as your listeners listen to this uh, broadcast, it'll be fashioned back on back on top because uh, everyone's going to bound back out of this period of lockdown. Yeah, I totally agree. How do we find out more about your company and you? Just go to brightpearl.com um, and uh, everything to everything about us is there. And I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter under Derek O'Carroll. There you go. Well, good. Well, I appreciate you joining us here today. Good stuff, Bob. Thanks very much. Thanks again to my guest, Derek O'Carroll. I like this angle on what the best businesses do when it comes to culture. That culture isn't a set of values one person puts on the wall. It's something everyone has to buy into to do what you want them to do when you're not there. On next week's episode, I'll be speaking with Nikki Baird, Vice President of Retail Innovation at Aptost. You won't want to miss it. I'm Bob Fibbs, The Retail Doctor. Thanks again for listening. Tell Me Something Good About Retail is the podcast of The Retail Doctor. Visit RetailDoc.com to learn what makes Bob Fibbs the authority on brick-and-mortar retail across the world, who works with some of the biggest brands all the way down to the smallest mom and pops. As a listener of the Tell Me Something Good About Retail podcast, you can receive free information and guides when you visit RetailDoc.com and sign up for our exclusive weekly newsletter. For more information, to access the complete archives of past retail goodness, and to see about Bob speaking to your audience, please visit RetailDoc.com.